Father, we just come before you this night. We're thankful for each one that is here. And now, Lord, we just ask that you would take our time that we have set aside to study your word, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word, to comprehend what it says, the message that is there, and let it change us and lead us and make decisions for us even this week, that we may rejoice when we come together again on Sunday. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We have a few uh, back uh, in the sound booth there, but let's turn to uh, Luke chapter 17. Now, we'll just pick up our story. Jesus has just resurrected Lazarus from the dead. He was in the grave for four days, and the response was amazing. There were some that believed. But there were some that even though they had seen Jesus do all of these great things, went their way to the Pharisees and began the plotting and planning process and and came to a head, as we might say, that their decision was it would be their job to fulfill the prophecy of God and make sure that Jesus died for the people. Now that is so Amazing to me. I just cannot even comprehend how someone could go through that reasoning process that would take them to that point. But that's what happens when we turn our back on the Word of God. You must believe Jesus for who He is, not for what He can or cannot do for you. And so we come here to Luke chapter 17, and uh, it was impossible for Jesus to go anywhere in Judah, uh, the land of Judea, the southern part there around Jerusalem, without being recognized and hunted by the chief priest and those from the temple. And so Jesus heads north. This will be his last trip. In verse 11, it says, And it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. Now, just to show you how nitpicky some people get with the Bible, because they're looking for a problem, they say, he went through the midst of Samaria And Galilee, how could he do that if he was heading toward Jerusalem? Well, he was making his last loop. He left Lazarus, Bethany, just outside the city of Jerusalem. He crossed the Jordan River, as far as we can tell, and he went north. That would have taken him through Samaria and Galilee. But he didn't stay long in Galilee. He turned around and he started the last journey back. This was just a matter of weeks before the Passover that all of these things were going. And as he entered into a certain village, he met ten lepers. Now, leprosy today is in Western world almost an unheard of disease. It just isn't something we deal with very much. Uh, In the Eastern world, leprosy is still a real problem. Uh, They do have some vaccines and medicines that help and and will stop the uh, disease. But in Jesus' day, 
Leprosy was incurable. It was a death sentence, and it was a terrible death. In fact, King Uriah spent the last 16 years of his life dying from leprosy. And so these 10 men, they could not live in the normal town. Leprosy is very contagious. It's as contagious as the common cold. And God knew all of this long before we figured out about microbes and bacterias and viruses and all of these. And so in his law, he commanded that a leper would put his hand over his nose, his upper lip, and cry unclean. That kept the germs from going any farther. And if you heeded the call, you heeded the warning, you would stay far enough away that you would not catch that dreaded disease. Now, there were ten lepers here, and most of us know this story. If you've been in Sunday school, we go through all the stories, and this is certainly one that we spend a little bit of time with. But these ten lepers, look at their call in verse 13. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priest. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. Now here's what... The process was, if you take time to read your Old Testament, there was quite a few regulations. You would have to go to the priest. The priest would examine you. You would then uh, take a bath. You would then uh, uh, shave uh, the hair off your head and that so that there would be no covering for the leprosy. Uh, You would then have to wait seven days and you would be examined again by the priest to make sure that there was no leprosy then you would offer sacrifices according to the law. And then you could live in the street of the city for seven days. You would be examined by the priest one more time. Then you could go home. Wow, what a process. And Jesus told these lepers as they said, Master, have mercy on us. He said, go show yourselves to the priest. He said, go start the process that would be for those who were being cleansed. Now, if you had open sores, if you had active leprosy, the priest would take one look at you and yell at you and tell you to get back out of the town and get away from the place because you were contagious. Now, these men were all right there. They had active leprosy. Jesus said, start the process as if you were cleansed. That would take some faith now, wouldn't it? But it says, as they turned around and walked to the, the priest to, for the cleansing, they began to look at themselves and they realized that the leprosy was departed, that they were healed, that they were cleansed. It's interesting, the Bible always uses the word cleansed when it talks about leprosy. Not healed, but cleansed most, almost every time. Because leprosy is a picture of sin. It kills you just a little bit at a time. It is a disgusting thing. 
Leprosy is terrible. You don't, you wouldn't even want to be around someone with leprosy. If I showed you pictures, uh, some people would turn green and start, whoa, oh, pastor, do you have to show us pictures like that? And uh, that's why we're not doing that. But as these men went, they found out they were cleansed and only one came back. He wasn't a Jew. He was a Samaritan. Now, how many of you remember where the Samaritans came from? When the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, came, Tiglath-Pileser and the other kings there, all them big names that nobody knows about, and they carried away captive the northern tribes. They brought another people from another part of the world and transplanted them in the land of Israel. Well, they had their own culture, their own gods, their own religion. And the Bible tells us that God sent lions among them. And so the king of Assyria took a priest and sent him back to the land of Israel and said, teach your people how to appease the God of the land. And so they worshiped the God of Israel and all of their false gods as well. Uh, you know what we call that today? We call it multiculturalism. That's where we say everything is equal and it's all good. Now, that's just not true. There's an awful lot of culture out there that isn't very cultured. In fact, it's amazing to me how all these fine cultured people can line up at the abortion clinic and, and trumpet the rights of to murder the babies, and boy, if you hurt a squirrel. If you're mean to the baby seals and you just don't feel the pain, you're in trouble. I, I don't like that kind of culture. I don't know about you. I think it's much more human to care about the little babies. And it doesn't hurt if you care about the seals as long as you don't give them humanity because they're not people. Somebody said, Pastor, do you like wildlife? I most certainly do. Medium well, well done, right next to mashed potatoes and gravy. I love wildlife. I enjoy it thoroughly. What that has to do with the message tonight, you figure out. Amen? Sorry. But we get back to this thing, and the whole truth of the matter is Jesus did not believe in equaling the cultures. The Samaritans, remember John chapter 4? He said, ye worship what ye know not. He says, you don't even understand what your worship is about because it's a made-up thing that you made up for convenience. Salvation is of the Jews. And it is. This Bible is a Jewish book. And so, this Samaritan came back and gave him thanks. Why do you think Jesus put this story in the Bible because we just finished if we follow it chronologically with 
the leaders, religious leaders of the Jewish people promising God that they would see Jesus die for that people. And here we have a Samaritan who did not know the truth, who did not know anything, who culturally was abhorrent in what they believed and their moral practices, and yet he returned to glorify God. Aren't you glad Jesus will save anyone who will come to him? He is not just interested in those that have the right pedigree. He's interested in anyone who will accept him for who he is. And he is God. Amen. And that story is in here just so that we can follow along here and understand what is happening. But you got to get the picture here. As this was going on, Jesus answering, verse 17, we're not, the, uh, we're not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come. You see, those same Pharisees, we're following Jesus. And they're going to be present everywhere Jesus is. They're going to be with him. They're going to be taunting him. They're going to be trying to trick him and deceive him. They're going to be lying in wait. They're going to be asking questions everywhere they go. And they want to know when the kingdom of God is coming. Now, right here is a pivotal passage in your Bible. Because the kingdom of God needs to be understood in the proper context. Uh, you will find those that will talk about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and, and try to make all of these things different things. And they will even go so far as to say... Well, you know, Matthew was not written to the New Testament Christian. Matthew was written to the Jews. It was Luke that was written to the Greeks. And that's why Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven and, and Luke uses the kingdom of God. And yet it's the same stories in Matthew and Luke using different names. You know what that tells me? The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven don't have a whole lot of difference between them. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have been allowing the writer of Matthew to use that term when Jesus told the story and Luke to use a different term. There are people who build entire doctrinal houses on this thing, written books about the difference between the two. And uh, that kind of scares me. I'm not going to tell you I have all the answers because I don't. But the kingdom of God is the place where God reigns. Is there any place God doesn't reign? Uh, the kingdom of heaven is where God reigns and controls everything from. So I got a real hard time making a huge difference between those two things. 
Excuse me. And so we come here and look what Jesus says. The kingdom of God, the end of verse 20, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is where? What's it say? You see, when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he said, thy kingdom come, didn't he? How many of you had Jesus perfectly ruling and reigning in your heart today that your life was totally under the rule and authority of the God of heaven? I don't see any hands going up. How many of you started out that way, said that's what I want to have happen, but then it kind of got messed up a little bit along the way? Would anybody else identify with me on that one? Okay, that's where most of us end up. You see, what we want is we want our lives to be under the jurisdiction within the authority of the king, which is Jesus. Amen? The kingdom of God is to be within us. God is to rule and reign in our hearts and in our lives. And if he rules and reigns in your life, I'll tell you what, that makes everything that goes on the outside a lot easier to deal with now, doesn't it? There is coming a kingdom where Jesus will sit upon the throne of David in the city of David, the new Jerusalem, and will rule and reign on this earth. I'm looking forward to that kingdom. But until I sit in that kingdom, I want to be reminded, and I want you to be reminded, thy kingdom come. That's a prayer. Lord, I want you to rule and reign today in my heart and in my life. Now, isn't it interesting how when the Pharisees come and they question Jesus about these things, he always turns the focus back to himself and to God. No matter what question they ask, and he's going to do that continually... And so Jesus spends the next little bit of time here and he, in the book of Luke, gives them uh, directions and, and instruction and talks about how in verse 25, but first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. And then he gives some warnings. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, shall, so shall it all be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they building. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. How many of you remember what happened to Mrs. Lot? Turned into a pillar of salt, the Bible tells us. She was destroyed 
in the evil of the city because they were commanded not to look back. I'll tell you, it must have been awful hard for Mrs. Lot because she had at least two daughters, possibly more, in the city of Sodom and their families and probably even grandchildren if things were as they normally were. But if your heart is in the evil of this world and you try to serve God, it's not going to happen. You've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. That's why the writer of the book of Hebrews, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And he goes on and he gives these commands. Verse 33, whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. And then we get down to chapter 18. And it says, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, not every time in the Bible does Jesus give you the whole purpose of the parable before he gives you the parable. More times he gives you the explanation of the parable afterwards. And there are several parables in the Bible that no explanation whatsoever is given. This is a parable that a lot of people have a problem because they don't stick with the point. Parable was meant to teach only one point. It's the parable of the unjust judge. He feared not God and he neither regarded man. Verse 2. And people get there and they say, well, why did God allow such a man to be a judge? That's not the point. That has nothing to do with what this story is about. He's just giving us the character of the judge. He's not a very nice guy. He is not someone that we would look up to or respect even. He didn't care about anybody or anything other than himself. Qualified to live in New York now, wouldn't he? And this poor widow woman goes to the judge and she says, avenge me of mine enemy. And he says, leave me alone. And she goes back. And he says, leave me alone. And she goes back and he says, don't bother me, lady. And she goes back and finally he says, she's going to weary me. And then I'm going to do something really dumb like attack this poor old widow lady and everybody's going to be mad at me so I better just get rid of the old lady and do what she says. Now boy, doesn't that just sound like modern society today? You know what it shows you? Many things have changed but one thing hasn't, humanity. Man has, is the same throughout all of his generations, is he not? And so he says, now look what Jesus says here. Hear what the unjust judge saith. The unjust judge said, Lest by her continual coming she weary me, I'm going to do what she wants. He said, Listen to the, what he saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto them, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, Shall he find faith on the earth? Here's what Jesus said. 
if the unjust judge can be moved by the continual asking of the widow woman, how many of you would say that God doesn't care about anybody? That would be blasphemy, would it not? Because God does care. God does love us. And so why do we, when we pray, treat God as if he didn't care? That's, what Jesus, that's the thing. You see, sometimes God's time clock isn't yours. Sometimes he makes you wait. What are you supposed to do while you wait? Well, if God doesn't care, I don't care. Wrong. But I've seen a lot of people do that over the years. You know who you hurt? Yourself. You see, he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You must believe that God is and that God is good. God is always good. Even when things are not good in our own life. That doesn't mean God is trying to hurt us or judge us. It means that he wants us to pray. Just keep praying. You say, but that sounds so foolish. Why, why should I just keep praying when God is not listening? Wrong. God is always listening. But sometimes we need the exercise. You know, if you have a little baby, you know, it's not always a good thing as soon as they start crying to pick them up. Because crying is part of the exercise. It's one of the few little things that a little baby can do. And they're building the strength in their lungs and their little diaphragm and uh, they're uh, swelling up those little, uh, whatever they call those uh, ovioli or bags in your lungs where you actually breathe. I mean, they're doing all kinds of good things. In fact, God programmed it in a little child when Philip was just three years old. He broke his leg and the doctor said, don't, don't do anything. He'll do his own physical therapy. Uh, he's not like an adult that has to go be trained. Uh, God just built it into their little bodies. They know what to do. You know, sometimes God just lets you cry a little while because it'll make you stronger. See, a lot of times we hit places in our lives where we have no passion and no strong desire in our prayer life. How many of you have ever been there? I want to warn you, that's not a good place for a Christian to be. And so God will allow things to happen. To put that emphasis, that urgency, that fervency is the Bible word, back into our prayer life. It said, men ought always to pray and not to faint. And Jesus ends the parable with this question. When I come back, am I even going to find faith on the earth? You know what? A lot of times we wear out 
long before God wants us to. You keep in mind, he is, he is good, and I better keep praying. That's what this parable is about. Now, let's put it in the context. Everywhere Jesus goes, he is being chased by the Pharisees. They are not wanting to play tiddlywinks or challenge him to a debate. They are wanting to put him to death. Jesus knows this. His disciples know this. Most of the Jews living in the land of Israel know this. And Jesus is teaching, you better pray. Now look at the next parable that he puts in here. And he spake this parable, verse 9, unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Boy, if that's not today's headline. If that's not what is going on in our world today, I don't know what is. Uh, It's been going on as long as there are two men in a room. One will think himself better than the other. I mean, it just works that way. And here's what Jesus said. These two men went to the temple to pray. One was a publican. The other was a Pharisee. The, The Pharisee lifted up his voice to heaven and looked up to God and said, I thank you that I'm such a good guy. I'm not like this filthy, rotten slob over here that actually came to the temple to pray. I mean, that's what was in under the, his words. He said, God, can you believe this rotten pig even came into the temple to pray? Now, there are people that are like that. You want to you deal with prejudice? Just put a little religion in the pot and you'll, you'll have prejudice. And there's a lot of it going on today. It's not over. But what did the publican do? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said he went to his house justified. They used to tell the story of the old uh, Jerry McCauley mission. It was the first rescue mission open in the United States. And it was just a place where if you were living on the streets, you could come in. It's still in operation today in downtown Manhattan. And back in the old days when Jerry McCauley himself, who had lived in the streets and in the prisons and uh, in the, the bottom of society, he'd say, all you have to do is God be merciful to me, a sinner. Tell you what, God saved a lot of sinners. And he's in the sinner-saving business. And I'm glad that I don't have to pass a righteousness test to come to Jesus. Amen? And that's what this parable is about. And then we come on down here, and uh, we're going to find uh, that... uh, Let's just uh, finish this here. Uh, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And so we have this teaching here, and now we're going to break in to our text. It would appear that uh, 
Uh, verse 15 is just right there connected, and it may be by just a few moments, but most of the people who study this thing seem to think that, uh, let's just go to Matthew chapter 19, that the Pharisees were there and they were continually arguing with Jesus. And, and it says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Now what we have going on is Jesus is on his way back. He's turned the loop. He's coming back. He's actually coming with the crowds of people that are going to Jerusalem for the coming Passover. Many times people would make the journey and they would get to Jerusalem weeks before the Passover so that they could visit family and, 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 and do other things. And as Jesus is traveling with them, he's healing them. The Pharisees are there and they're going to bring up the issue of divorce. They're looking for some reason to attack him, to arrest him, to be able to have power over him. And so, even as it is today, the issue of divorce is a very particular issue. And people want to argue an awful lot about it. And Jesus will put the argument in its place and we will try our best at this church to keep it where it ought to be. And their question was, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? They said, is it right for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? You see, they had a big debate going on in the Pharisaical circles that you could only divorce your wife for some major sin, uh, immorality, uh, adultery, uh, or some kind of immorality that went on before you were married, uh, what the Bible calls fornication. And uh, then there was another group. If she burnt your toast, you could have a divorce. And these two groups would sit down and argue with each other. And they debated for literally hundreds of years which group was right. And so they brought the debate to Jesus, hoping that they would draw him in on one side or the other so that they could fight with him about this. Now, what did Jesus do? Verse 4, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Now, I don't know why we say this at weddings all the time. Because Jesus is explaining divorce right here. Uh, but uh, we do want what God has joined together never to be put asunder, and that's probably why we say it. Uh, but it's really not properly contextual use of the scripture. Uh, are we together there? And so we want to be particular about this. But so Jesus said, listen, God never intended for 
divorce. Now they're huddling. How do we answer this one? Which, which side is he on? Oh, he's not on either side. What are we going to do? He's introduced another option to our quandary. Uh, it's going to be more difficult now. And so they said, well, why did Moses, look at the next verse, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and put her away? Are you criticizing the law, Jesus? Well, here is another opportunity for them to attack Jesus. He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. What did Jesus just do? He said, the problem is not the law. Uh, the problem is not God. The problem is you people who want to argue about the law of God because the real issue, there has never been a divorce without a hard heart. Never, ever. And so that is the issue. And you can go through here and, and try to make this passage say things that it doesn't, but the issue here is the hardness of the hearts of human beings. That's the issue. That's what makes divorce. And you know what? You can't soften another human being's heart. But you better make sure your own is right. That's what Jesus is saying here. And that's all this passage says. Unfortunately, as human beings, there are times when a divorce is necessary. It's a terrible tragedy when we get to that point. But that's not God's plan. And if it's two saved people or people who claim to be saved, then it is never God's plan. But let me ask you a question. Are hearts any less hard today than they were when Jesus walked the earth? Some things just don't change now, do they? And that is the passage. But let me tell you something. If you get a divorce so you can get a new wife or a new husband, that is what is being spoken of here as adultery. Uh, you do not have the right. Well, Pastor, we were unsaved. Wrong. Uh, marriage is an institution that God organized. We weren't married in church. Well, marriage is before the church. Uh, but, but um, no, marriage is important. And no human being has the right to just get rid of their spouse because they want another one. That is what the passage is saying. And you try to get anything else out of there, you're going to get in trouble. Somebody says, well, what does the Bible say about remarriage? If there is divorce, the whole purpose of divorce is to allow for remarriage. But you get divorced for the wrong reasons and God doesn't recognize it. If you... Um, 
you know, and, and that's, that's just where, where we are. As somebody says, well, Pastor, what about my situation? Well, we'd have to sit down and talk for a long time about your situation because you have to evaluate each one individually. And uh, we do not uh, promote remarriage around here, but God does allow for it in certain in certain keep uh, certain possibilities there. But uh, read Paul; you do a whole lot better if you have find yourself in that situation just to stay single. You'll do a lot better. That's that's what the Bible teaches. It's never recommended. And um, so Jesus is teaching this. He turns the Pharisees literally on their heads uh, with this passage. And, you know, we go on in uh, the book of of Mark. I believe, no, here it is in, in Matthew. His disciples, verse 10, say unto him, If the cause of man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But he said, All men cannot receive this saying, say they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were born so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there are some eunuchs, there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. And the simple truth of the matter is, what it's talking about is there are some people that just aren't going to get married. You know what? Uh, I've, I've given this example. I had somebody, uh, I can't even remember who it was now. I often give the example of my brother. He said, I'm about 40 years old. Should I find a wife? And I said, listen, if that's what you think about it, don't find one. It takes a little bit more than that to be married. And someone else said, well, I'm just not quite sure. Well, if you're not sure, don't do it. Marriage does not solve problems, my friends. It only adds to them because now you've got two people's problems to solve. Now, what do I think about marriage? Uh, I like what Brother Sam said. He said, I got married when I was my uh, um, high school sweetheart. I think he was 21 or 22 when he got married. And uh, he said, if I had to note how wonderful marriage is, he said, I'd done it when I was 16. And uh, Brother Clayton used to say I'd done it when I was 10. And uh, I don't think God intended it to be that way. But uh, you know the point. A little hyperbole never hurt anybody. Uh, Marriage is a wonderful thing if it's in the Lord. You got to make sure. Yeah, Brother Franz better say amen. Just been a year and a couple of weeks. But the simple truth of the matter is, look at the next verse here. Then were brought unto him little children that should put their, that he should put his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. You see, the reason why we skipped to Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10 and stopped in the book of Luke is because in the book of Luke, where we stop, the next verse starts this passage right here. And so we're fitting the testimonies of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together like the, the fingers 
uh, of a drawer, or uh, if you're familiar with that, when you join wood, you cut little fingers in the wood and you join it together. We're just putting the story together in chronological order. And so they bring the little children, and his disciples rebuke him. But look what Jesus said, verse 14, Suffer the little children, and forbid them not to come unto me. For such is the kingdom of heaven. If you won't receive Jesus as a little child, you can't have the Bible salvation. It's just that simple. Jesus does not want to be understood as a complex theological ideal. He wants to be worshipped as God, for that is who he, whom he is. You get saved when you surrender to him. You know, little children don't have to understand everything. As they get older, they try awful hard. Well, Dad, I can't, I can't use it until I take it apart first, see how it works. I've got a son like that. I've got a couple of sons like that. One would take it apart and couldn't get it back together again. The other one can. Amen? But the simple truth of the matter is, you can't take God apart and examine him to see how he works. He's a little bigger than you are. And so, it's okay to be as that little child and just simply trust in the Lord. Amen? And this is the story. Jesus is battling unbelief. At Lazarus' resurrection, they were making plans to put him to death while others believed on him. They've been using every excuse in the book. When is the kingdom of God coming? Jesus said, it's not coming with observation. You're not going to see it. When it comes, it's going to come suddenly. You can't be prepared for it. But until that time, the kingdom of God is within you. So how about you get your heart right with God? Amen? They come to him. They want to argue with him about divorce. What does Jesus do? He said, it's the hardness of your heart that brings about divorce. So how about you just get your heart right with God? And by the way, if you want an example of how to get your heart right with God, he picks up a little child and sits him on his lap and says, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's a simple faith that God wants. And all God's people said, Amen. And... We'll just stop there. We'll pick up the rich young ruler next Thursday night by God's grace. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we just ask for your goodness and your grace. We ask that you would teach us from the scriptures, that you would allow us to understand that you care about us and love us even though you make us pray a little longer than we think we ought to. That you're still good even though it seems that you're not answering us. And Lord, no person is better than any other person. No person is righteous, only Jesus. Lord, I pray 
that each one of us would take our eyes off ourself and put them on the Savior and walk with him each day till he comes. In your name we pray. Before we finish that prayer, we'll just keep our heads bowed, our eyes closed.